So the good news is, I do think family is very important. I think it's very important to God, but I don't want you to just take my word for it. I wanna show you that. And so, uh, first we're gonna look at Isaiah 9-6. So this is on the Old Testament, this is on uh, the past side of the cross. We don't need to even read the whole thing, actually. I just wanna look at the last line. There's a lot of, obviously, adjectives and nouns that were used in that, but the one specifically I wanna look at is what God is called, and that's everlasting Father, okay? Let's look on this side of the cross in Luke 3.38. This is a genealogy tracing Jesus all the way back to Adam, and so much could have been said about Adam. He could have just been called Adam, the first man ever created, the first servant, the first worker, but instead, Adam is called a son of God. Next, we all know it, the Lord's Prayer. There's so many things that could have started this prayer off. God could have been called so many different things, but instead of being called anything else, he's called our Father. We look in Romans 8 to Martin Luther's Gateway to the Bible. In the language of family pervades the entire chapter, it talks of sons and daughters. And then in Paul's letter to the Galatians in chapter 4, we are again called sons and daughters. <laughs> Daughters, sons and daughters, and he is uh, he ascribes God the title as Abba, an Aramaic term that implies intimacy, and it calls him Daddy. So the reality is, is that you cannot separate the Bible from family, from Genesis one to Revelation twenty two. The entire book is about the restoration of God's family. It's so important, it is the first institution ever created in the Bible, and that's what I wanna look at first. So let's start in Genesis 1, 27 through 28, and then we're gonna uh, spend a little bit of time in Genesis 2, 24. I love Genesis as a book. There's a couple places I would preach from probably every week. Uh, John 15, Matthew 3 and 4, uh, Jesus' baptism and his identity and his testing, but I also love Genesis really 1 through 4. Uh, the sad thing that's happened in the past two, 300 years is that there's been so much debate about Genesis 1 through 4 that sometimes we, even as Christians, get lost in that and we forget just to read the truths that are there. And so today I just want to look at the truth that's right there in front of, in front of us. So Genesis 1:27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I didn't point this out in the first one, but let me point it out now. God blessed them and then said, be fruitful and multiply. Look at that. All right. Secondary perspective in Genesis 2, 24. This isn't a, um, this isn't a different account. It's just a different perspective on the creation account. Genesis 2, 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So what we need to recognize here is God doesn't create because he has to. Nothing is forcing God to create anything. He doesn't create because he just wants to be the divine judge and ruin everybody's fun. That's not God's intention in creating. God creates because he wants a family. He wants to walk in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve in the garden, and he wants to be close with them. He wants to know them. He wants to spend time with them because he enjoys spending time with them. Think about how crazy that is. God wants to spend time 
with Adam and Eve and to get to know them. God absolutely loves this idea of family. He loves this idea of being close to us. And it is the first institution he ever created. He thought it was so important that he instituted it before anything else in this planet, on this planet, in this world, in this universe. It comes before the law. It even comes before the cross. And it comes before the church because you can't have the church without family. Can't say it enough. God absolutely loves family. And what I believe God is doing in this season, in his body, is calling families back to their original intent. He's calling them back to the garden in very simple but often forgotten ways. He's calling them back to be intimate with each of us again and to be intimate and to know our families, how they were designed to be. And so what this means is for some of us, our family has definitely been guilty of it at times. Uh, we have strayed. We need to realign ourselves with God's heart. We need to listen to the principles that he lays out in the Old and New Testament and go after those as a family. And then for others of us that call Christ our home, our body, um, it will be aligning for the first time. We may have never perfectly lined up with God's principles, and the beautiful thing about it is when we do line up with God's principles, there is blessing, and the blessing is him. And so what I'm gonna talk about today is completely counter-cultural. It probably won't even sound good, but the reality is, is that Christianity, even before Jesus died, was the most countercultural movement that ever existed. Jesus comes along in a society where they teach, love your neighbor but hate your enemy. And Jesus comes along and says, no, no, no. He says, love your neighbor and pray for those who persecute you. And in a society since the beginning of time that has said, laid up for yourselves treasures here and now, Jesus says, don't worry about here and now. Lay up your treasures for yourself where it really matters, where neither rust, moth, or thieves can steal. It's completely countercultural in how he treats women. Women weren't even allowed to testify in a court of law in Jewish culture, but they're the first ones to witness him after the resurrection. In the Roman world, women were thought of so little. If you had a Roman baby girl in your family, you simply discarded them on the side of the road if you didn't want them. But Jesus comes along and says, no, 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 no. You have value, you are perfectly equal to men, and so much more so, women are the culmination of the creation account. That's worth something, I don't know. All right, so Christianity's always been countercultural, 100%. And the reality is, as Christians, we are going to be fighting the tide, perhaps more in the West than ever before, but that's perfectly okay. If your family is going along through life in American culture and not feeling the tension of your family being tried to be dragged one way while swimming upstream the other way, that is something to worry about. But the tension that we feel from swimming upstream is good tension, it's supposed to be there. And so let's look at Genesis again. Uh, we're gonna look at a really interesting passage of scripture, it's very short, but I think it's very, very profound, the description of Enoch. Enoch is mentioned a few times in the Bible, but he's not largely discussed. So, Genesis 5, 21 through 24. This is a genealogy tracing Adam all the way to the flood with Noah. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. And so I, I, 
I find this passage so interesting because what an interesting description to describe Enoch's relationship with God. And it's actually what I wanna focus on. I wanna focus on this word walked. And so when this was originally written, it would have been written in Hebrew. And the reality is we have great translations today. They get to the best text we have and they translate them incredibly, incredibly well. But anytime you translate from one language to another, a little bit is lost. There's either a flavor or anything like that that doesn't perfectly come over. And so as we look at this, uh, I want us to put our theology caps on because we're going to seminary. This is gonna be uh, a little bit of a theological exercise, but it's gonna be okay. So do you know what this word walked means in Hebrew? It means walked. It's not that complicated. That's the good news. It literally means walked. It's not some big exercise. It's very, very simple. We know what walking is. Walking is just a slow, intentional, intimate act with someone else. If you walk with someone else, it is a choice, it is slow, it is purposeful. And that's how Enoch is described. But let me ask you this. Does a slow walk at all sound like the American way? The American way is a million miles per hour all of the time. If you're not hustling, what are you doing? And it's so funny, I had to tell Fidel, I had this written in here before he said anything. Uh, Fidel and I were talking in the, before the last service and I asked how he was doing and he said, I'm good, but I'm busy. And you know how it is, we like to say I'm busy as a stamp of honor. We have turned and we have bought into this idea that our value comes from being busy. If your schedules are not full, if you're not running from place to place, then you are not living up to what society wants for you. However, God is not looking for us to run with him. God is looking for us to walk with him. He loves the slowness of it. The reality is, is that God is a good old-fashioned crockpot. And we are more Instapot people. And so God is not going to change from his crockpot ways to fit our agenda. He is going to ask us instead to put down the Instapots and let's get back to some home cooking. So he's not gonna speed up to meet our speed. He's gonna ask us to meet him at his speed. And there's, there's something to be said about that. And so I think um, we as families, we as individuals, um, we have to slow down. We have to slow down, and it looks like slowing down, I think, in two ways. The first is physically. We have to slow down physically. In fact, slowing down is so important that in the Ten Commandments, the first time any semblance of really any law is given, in the same, same uh, commandments that have uh, no other gods before me, honor your mother and father, do not, do not kill, excuse me, do not murder, um, do not steal, all of that, rest, take a Sabbath, is part of the Ten Commandments. In fact, the Sabbath was such a big deal in ancient Israelite culture that there were some rabbis who thought it was the most important command. Now, while I don't agree with that, I can understand why they put such an emphasis on it. And so we as Americans, what society says we need to do is we go from sunup to sundown. We start our day, we're looking at emails, we go to work, and then we come home and we work more. We transport from A to B, A to B, all the while we're not resting. We get to the weekend and we're just doing it all over again, and we are absolutely exhausted. And so we have to rest. Now, as important as I think physical rest is, I think there's another kind of rest that the church has not fully entered into that I think God is asking families to enter into either for the first time or again. 
And that's mental rest. And so I just want to put this forward very softly and very humbly. And I just want to say, um, anybody who's been alive for five seconds in America recognizes our mental health as a country. And I would say all over the world at this point, in the modernized world, is taking a big hit. Really not doing well. And I think a large part of this is because we don't know how to just be. We are glued to technology. Almost every second of every day, we are interacting with some kind of technology. So let me put it to you like this. I was reading a book by Jeff Bethke that really helped me open my eyes to this. It's called To Hell With The Hustle. And so uh, what he puts forward is how much society has changed in just the past 200 years. Up until 200 years ago, there had been advancements in society, but largely, you grew up just like your grandparents grew up. Since the beginning of time, it was practically the same way. You lived off the land, it was slow, it was very, very crockpot style. And then all that changes with the invention of the electricity and the light bulb. All of a sudden, factories are open at all hours. You're expected to be up sooner and go to bed later. You're expected to work longer than you ever have before, all in the name of being good enough. But that's not where it stopped. This past century has perhaps been one of the most revolutionary centuries in all of, in all of history. It starts with the radio, which is fine in itself, but the radio then takes us to the TV. The TV then takes us to the radio in the car, and after that, we're looking at tablets, games all the time, Xboxes, PS5s, and all of a sudden, laptops are on the scene. And before you know it, from sun up to sundown, we're not giving ourselves a break because we are constantly connected to social media. We are constantly connected to technology, and we are just suffering the consequences of it. Mentally, we're going a million miles per hour all of the time. And we can't handle it. We weren't made to handle that. We're not some super machines. We're humans. We were told to rest because we were supposed to rest. Our brains need to stop. We need to disconnect from the world and reconnect back to the vine. And so let me say this, as important as I think it is to rest, if you guys are like me, we're pendulum swingers. And so what I mean by that is that you guys have seen it. Anytime something bad happens in the world, especially in American culture where everything is so emotional right now, our tendency is to be all the way over here and then it comes from a good place. It really does. It comes from a good place. We want to see change. And so we say we never want to do that again. Let's make sure it never happens again and we swing the pendulum to the far side. Instead, it's that happy medium. It's that happy medium that we have to get to. And so, yes, we do need to slow down, but the purpose of slowing down is to go out. We cannot become recluses who have perfect little homes with perfect little schedules that can never, ever be bothered. That's not the call of following Jesus. The call of following Jesus is peace internally that comes from quiet and connection with him so that we can take our internal peace to the external chaos around us. It's exactly what God did in the creation account. He looks at the world and is formless and void. It is chaotic, and he brings peace to it. Our communities, the people that live closest to us and the people that we work with are desperate for that same peace. And it is only when we have true internal peace that then we can go and form deep, authentic relationships that we can bring life to, that we can bring living water and the bread of life to. And so I think rest 
is absolutely paramount, but we can't forget that rest, the purpose behind our resting is so that then we can go out and be the hands and feet of Jesus. As important as that is, I think there's another way that honestly, it's at the top and oil flows down. I think God is calling, calling his body, calling those who call him father, I think he's calling them to prioritize him in a completely new and radical way. And so let me start by reading a couple of short excerpts from some books. So this is Atomic Habits. If you haven't read Atomic Habits, it's pretty great. Um, it's a secular book with a ton of Christian principles in it. And so let me give you a little bit of context. There's a man named Laszlo Polgar. He's from Hungary. And in 1965, he tries to start courting a woman named Carla. Now here's what he tells Carla. He says, hey, I believe that geniuses are not born, but instead they are molded and created through their environments. And he says, I would, this is an interesting marriage proposal. He says, I would like to see if we can turn our children into the best chess players in the world. And so that's what him and Carla set out to do. So this is in reference to their children. The kids would be homeschooled a rarity in Hungary at the time. The house would be filled with chess books and pictures of famous chess players. The children would play against each other constantly and compete in the best tournaments they could find. The family would keep a meticulous file system of the tournament history of every competitor the children faced. Their lives would be dedicated to chess. The Polgers were parents to three young girls, Susan, Sophia, and Judith. Susan, the oldest, began playing chess when she was four years old. Within six months, she was defeating adults. Sophia, the middle child, did even better. By 14, she was a world champion, and a few years later, she became a grand master. Judith, the youngest, was the best of all. By age five, she could beat her father. At 12, she was the youngest player ever listed among the top 100 chess players in the world. At 15 years and four months old, she became the youngest grandmaster of all time, younger than Bobby Fischer, the previous record holder. For 27 years, she was the number one ranked female chess player in the world. And yet, if you ask them about it, they claim their lifestyle was attractive, even enjoyable. So I don't think it's a secret that we've seen this type of thing happen in the secular world. We may have never heard it happening with chess players before, but what I think about when I think about verbiage and the type of environment these children grew up in is I think of Tiger Woods, the greatest golfer that's ever lived by a million miles. I think of Tiger Woods. And what I think about is the, the videos that they show of him as a little kid chipping and putting. And he absolutely loved it. And this was reinforced, as we can see from his father. And Tiger grew up to believe that this was everything. This was his purpose. This is what he was made to do. He found it enjoying and even and even enjoyable. Um, and so, it can happen in the secular world, 100%. We can mold children, we can mold children to our liking. Tom Brady's, all of that happens because they're molded. Can it happen in the Christian sphere? So where I wanna introduce uh, a man some of you may have heard of, heard of, some of you may not have. His name's Leonard Ravenhill. Leonard Ravenhill, in my eyes, is one of the greatest men that has ever lived. When he was described, uh, I believe by his son, his son said his father lived every moment in light of eternity. I'm not sure if there's a greater compliment than that. 
And so I want to look at how his life played out. And so some context for Leonard's life. Leonard was born into a very, uh, his mother and grandmother were devout Christians, devout, devout Christians. But his father wasn't when the marriage first happened. His father was a drunk, but eventually converted to Christianity and totally changed his life. So this is Leonard talking about his dad coming out of that. I'm glad my daddy came out of that. He was the first to challenge me about the Christian life. There were never any sports magazines in our house. All the literature in the house was spiritual, every bit of it. When I would read, I always read something about some missionary. I read one day about somebody in Japan with a Japan rescue mission and then someone about, about someone in the Congo. All the books on our shelves were books of spiritual matters because daddy set these things before us. To further make this point, read this quote uh, from his mother. His mother told him 20 years later that after the midwife had left the room, she laid her hands on Leonard and prayed, Lord, make this boy a preacher or don't let him live. She then dressed and went to the weekly prayer meeting, taking baby Lynn with her. So Leonard attended his first prayer meeting when he was two hours old. It was this kind of atmosphere into which Leonard Ravenhill was born. And so let's be honest. If anybody falls into this camp I'm about to talk about, it's me. We overcomplicate Christianity. I think Austin talked last week about how we need to get back to the basics. We need to get back to the basics. And so we overcomplicate Christianity. We take, suge- we take commands and suggestions and wonder why our life looks the way it does. Let's look at Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 7. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Let me read that again. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. When I think about the environment that Leonard Ravenhill grew up in, this is a biblical example. And if we're being very, very honest, we've probably read this passage before or one like it and thought, too extreme, too radical, not doable. This is not a command. This is a suggestion. But I will say it does sound radical, and to us it may not even sound appealing. Talking about God 24-7, letting, him, letting us meditate him all day long. And so yes, it is radical, but it's also biblical. And so let me be honest again. Growing up, sports, sports were more or less my life. Uh, from preteens to teenager, all I really cared about was sports. In the morning before school, I'd watch ESPN. I'd go to school, think about sports the entire time, go to practice afterwards, come home, not be interested in anything else but watching more ESPN and more games. I was pretty good at soccer. I was the captain of almost every team I played on. I traveled the Southeast playing soccer every single weekend I played in college. Let me be very, very honest. I count it all as a loss. 
I want so much more for my son and daughter than just sports. I want them to know him. I want them to know him better than I know him. I want him or her to know the power of his resurrection and live from that. We've settled, we've settled so far. I could just care less if they turn out to be like the next Tom Brady or the next Giannis or Bryce Harper, or go to Ivy League or have the perfect resume. I don't, I just don't care. I really, really don't. And I firmly believe God wants, God wants us as mothers and fathers and as individuals to come back to the basics, to come back to loving him. Because listen, we hear that command and we think it's so radical, but the beautiful thing about God's commands is that on the other side of those commands, there's blessing. I'm not talking health, wealth, and prosperity. I'm talking him. He's worth it. Do you know the easiest way for your sons and daughters to love God, to love Jesus, to love Holy Spirit is for you too. They have to grow in atmospheres that show them that this is the most important thing on the planet because guess what? If you don't, somebody will tell them something else is the most important thing on the planet. I really believe that God is begging for his church, for you and I to choose him again. You know, it was funny when COVID first hit, everybody was at church. Everybody that was comfortable was at church because it was the only thing open. And now that the walls have kind of fallen down a little bit off COVID, I think he is asking us to stop putting sports, careers, money, retirements, our kids, clubs, collections, video games, TV, and all the other ways that we crave to be entertained to the side. Instead, I think God, just like he has been from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, is begging for his families to choose him. He is begging for them and he is saying, please, please choose me because I killed my baby boy for you. I let him be slaughtered to the point he was unrecognizable and I chose you when you didn't choose me on the cross. Will you pick me and will you follow me and pick up your cross? Now let's pray. I want to invite our ministry teams. Um, if y'all could start making your way to the front, please. God, I thank you for family. I thank you that you designed family to be life-giving. And I know today there are some in this room who have never truly experienced life-giving family, God. I pray that you would heal wounds, that you would lead them to your heart, that you would, um, you would just lay fresh fire under families, God. I pray that you would bring us back to you, that we wouldn't care how we look to society, we'd care how we look to you, that we would honor you with our hearts, we would honor you with our time, that we would prioritize you again, that you would be the first in our life. So I pray today, this isn't a message that stays in this room, I pray that this leaves these walls and it goes home. I pray that we would see revival at Riverstone, in Kennesaw, in Cobb County, because families choose you again. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. And so our prayer teams are here. They would love to pray for you about any and everything. You're more than welcome to come at any time.